Well, good morning, church. Um, Excited to be with you this morning. And I want to begin this morning by sharing uh, a brief story. It's a story I've told a couple of times this week, um, just unrelated times. And I feel like it's really appropriate with where where we intersect with what God's saying in his word this morning. So if you don't know, um, Jesse and I grew up in Virginia on the coast. And I went to school. We moved after we got married. We moved to northern Indiana, and went to school. And we're, uh, I was serving at a church up there. And I made a friend in school. Well, kind of made a friend. He he forced himself to be my friend. If you know Pastor Todd, you'll know what I mean. Um, and I'm, I made a friend in school. And he got hired by a church in Sebring to come to Ocala to to be a part of, of, of leading a church in a revitalization. And he said, hey, Michael, why don't you leave like your cushy, not cushy, that's not the right term. Why don't you leave a job that you really, really like with a church that you really love and and a mentor that's that's really poured into you for the last four years? Why don't you leave all of that and move down to Florida where you don't have a job and you don't know anybody and it's just going to be really, really hard. And I laughed and said, no, thank you, and continued on my way. And uh, God does God things. And a year later, not only was I considering it, I felt like that's actually where God wanted us to go. And so we began praying, and we or not began, but we continued to pray, and we were trying to figure out, like, God, do you want us to leave this place that we've created is kind of comfortable for us and go to somewhere completely new, this new adventure. And we did. So at that time, it was Jesse and I and, and uh, two boys, Camden and Riley, and Grant had been born for two weeks when we loaded up the, uh, when we loaded up the moving van and we moved from Indiana down to Florida, a 13-hour drive. We took it in two days with a two-week-old baby. And I got here, and we started working in the church, and that's what we came down here for. We wanted to be part of revitalization. We wanted to see God move. We wanted to see, uh, we believed that God had called us to be um, ministers to this community. And so we were reaching out to neighbors, and we were praying that God would do something amazing. And and this all this time, we're working, we're working, we're working, we're working, and it doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like. In fact, it was really, really hard. And I got to this place in my heart. I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, this is probably just me. But I got this, to this place in my heart where I said, God, come on now. Like, you owe me. I, I, I left everything that I knew. I moved hours and hours away. I left a comfortable job. I left, you know, reasonable support. Now I'm like, not only am I volunteering for the church, but now I got to work 40 hours to put food on the table. I'm working outside the church and I'm, I've put it all out there and I sacrificed everything for you. I moved us all the way out here. Like, why aren't you showing up the way that I want you to show up? And I got really, really frustrated. And I was like, look, like, I made the commitment to follow you. And now I'm following you, and this is really hard. I thought if I made this commitment and I just was walking in God's will that everything would fall into place and it would just be some magical like storybook happily ever after, you know, follow your dreams thing, and it just hasn't been. Hey, it's been an incredible, the last five years have been incredible, and I've learned and grown so much, um, but it's not what I thought it was going to be when I got here. And I was really, and I, and I, it was, there was a point where God finally like just sat me down. Sometimes he has to do that. Just, just sit down for a minute. I got something for you. Listen, that big commitment, that move across the country that you felt like was so earth shattering, 
that was your first step. And I got 10 more, at least. Like, you're complaining that you got to step two. And we got more that we need to do. And it took me a while to realize that just because I choose to follow God doesn't mean, A, that it's going to look like how I want, and B, that making that big commitment is going to level the path and make it all easy afterwards. And I think that's where we're going to get to in our series this morning. We've been in the series that we've called D.I. Yahweh, and this is asking the question, how is it that God actually gets stuff done in the world? Yahweh is the personal name for the God of the Bible, and he's infinite creator, and, we, and the Bible opens up and talks about how he just speaks and things happen. He creates all of the world just by his voice. And yet, as history has progressed, he's chosen other ways to get things done. In fact, he uses normal people, average people, to do his supernatural work. And it gets messy at times. So we're taking a look at this, this next chapter of our series, D.I. Yahweh, and we're actually going to take 10 chapters. We're going to cover 10 chapters of material this morning. I'm not going to read it all, but we got a lot of things that we're going to go through. So if you'd like to follow along with me um, on these blue, in these blue Bibles that are under the chairs in front of you, we're going to be on page nine or 496. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, starting in the book of Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to cover Nehemiah chapter 1 to chapter 10 this morning. Page 496 in the Blue Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 1. And as I see that we're getting there, I'm going to pause and, and, and we'll pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you have chosen to communicate your character and the things that we ought to know about you through normal people. Yes, people empowered by your spirit, people loved by you and moved by you to do your work, but normal people. Lord, we come to you this morning acknowledging that we haven't always followed you well and asking that you would just, in your grace and your kindness, show us the steps forward. Lord, if we need to turn around, then would you lead us to do that? And if we need to just endure patiently the obstacles in our way, Lord, we pray you'd lead us to do that. And in this time together, we pray that you would speak clearly through your word. God, would your word stand true and fast in our hearts this morning, and anything that I say that's my opinion just get washed out. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm just going to give you a real brief recap of some of the things that we've studied thus far. We studied in the book of Ezra about how uh, Israel, which was God's special people, he had formed a special nation, a special country, and, they had, and God had set them apart and said, hey, just worship me. And they said, no, we want to worship other gods. He's like, no, you ought to worship me. And they said, no, we'd rather just do what we want to do. And he's like, no, you need to worship me or you're going to send you in time out. And I've got the ability to do that. So he does. He sends the nation of Israel into time out. And then the story of Ezra, those first six chapters, is a story of how they come out of time out. And when they come out of time out, they go back to the, their homeland and they want to restore the true worship of Yahweh. And so they build an altar. 
And that takes some time. And then they build the rest of the temple, the, where the rest of the sacrifices go. And, and that took some time too. Remember, there was some opposition to God's work in the world. So that was where we left off. They finished the altar. They finished the temple. They completed the work that they started. But remember that the whole city was burned down and destroyed. So they have built an altar and a temple, remember, with, with financial support from the king of Persia. They've built this beautiful, immaculate temple, all of this golden stuff, and they built it in the middle of this ruined city. The city of Jerusalem itself is still rubble. But they got... They got the the building together. They can worship God the right way, the way that he told them to in the law. And so God sends, actually, in those last chapters of Ezra, beginning in chapter 7, which we haven't read, but we're going to come back to today. I'm not going to get into it, but I'm just saying, like, Ezra shows up in chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So he's going to show up in Nehemiah as well. But Ezra is a scribe, and he's somebody who knows the word of God, and he teaches the word of God to the people. So as they have built this temple, as they've rebuilt the altar, they're restoring the true worship of Yahweh. God sends them a teacher named Ezra to show them what it is that God wants them to do. And so they're learning, and they're trying to get things back, but the temple's sitting in the middle of a ruined city. And so at this point, we flash from Jerusalem all the way back thousands of miles to Persia. Okay? And that's where the book of Nehemiah starts. It's around the same time, but we're in a completely different city. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that's the capital city of Persia, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. I'm pause there. So they have gone back and traveled back to uh, Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, but the rest of the city is destroyed. And the gates of the city, the, the wall around the city that protects the city is still laying flat. And so Nehemiah is a Jew that ends up in, in the high ranks. He's actually cupbearer to the king of Persia. And so he gets, there's some people who come back from Jerusalem. He says, hey, what's going on in Jerusalem? I, we sent you guys out. We sent you a bunch of money. You were going to go back and you were going to rebuild the temple. You were going to restore the worship of God. It's like, what's, how's it going? I want to know. How's it going? He's excited to hear. And the guys just say, it's not great. Like, we did what we were supposed to do. We spent the money we were supposed to, in the way that we were supposed to spend it, but the city's still leveled. The gates are still burnt up with fire. And Nehemiah's heart breaks. See, the worship, I find, I find this so interesting because the rest of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah's account of how he rebuilt the walls. 
And if you're a person like me, like I want to, I want to get into the spiritual depth of like the scripture and how God speaks to us and those kind of things. And Nehemiah is a book about construction. And so I've, I wrestled with this, like, how is it, why is Nehemiah so upset, and how is it that this construction manual and this leadership manual ends up in the scriptures? But when Nehemiah hears that the, that the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls are still down, he knows that the true worship of Yahweh has not penetrated the, full, the fullness of society. If, we, if, if the Jews can come back and they can rebuild the temple and they can offer sacrifices to the temple and leave the rest of the city around it in ruins, then, then their worship is confined to what they do and what they offer at the temple. They haven't realized that the city, rep, or the city that, that the, the, the temple dwells in reflects on the God of the city. And that if the God of the city is going to be worshipped in, in spirit and in truth, like that's going to make the city look different. Even if the temple itself is immaculate and covered in gold, and if the rest of the city and everything around outside of the temple is desolate, then the God worshipped there is powerless outside the walls of the temple. And I, I feel like maybe sometimes in my own heart, that's how God has looked at me. I've said, I said, God, I worship you, and we have these moments where we're singing, and I just feel so connected to you, and I'm so grateful for the salvation that you've given to me. And he said, yeah, but every other part of your life and every person that's around you is desolate. And the true worship of me has not restored your relationships and it hasn't restored the, or it hasn't organized the way that you run your household and it hasn't permeated the way that you work at your job. And so Nehemiah hears this, that the walls are broken down and he, he weeps. He sits down and he prays and fasts for days. God, I can't believe that this is happening. And, and this is such, I, I'm just, this is not actually related. Well, it is really, all of it's related. But this is not like to the point. But Nehemiah, as he's praying, he's praying for the sins of Israel. I, these people that went back, these people that went away, like they're the ones who sinned. God, I'm praying that you would forgive their sins, that you would work in their hearts, that you would help them to restore the true worship, not just at the temple, but throughout the rest of the city. And as he's praying, can you hear how, how his words change there at the end of verse 6? <clears throat> Hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So even as he's praying for the sins of those people over there, he acknowledges that I'm a part of the community and the sin in my heart affects everybody else. He says, I cannot pray that God would restore the nation of Israel if I don't acknowledge that I too am part of the problem. So his heart breaks for what he sees, and his heart breaks when he realizes that what he sees is a reflection of his own heart. There's times where you see sin in other people's life, and it hurts. You're broken, and you're angry. Like, how could you do that against God? And then you realize, my heart is just as prone to wander as yours. And but for the grace of God, that sin would be my own. And as we intercede for people, can we also identify with them? The real question is, do we start with prayer? 
do we begin with prayer? When we hear about something that's bad, when we hear about a church that has gone astray or fallen apart, when we hear about people who say that they love God, who aren't worshiping God, like, do we begin with prayer? Or do we just begin to run our mouth to the person next to us? Can you believe that? I thought they said they were a Christian. Oh, my gosh. Do we get, begin with prayer, and do we begin with prayer that identifies our sin and our propensity to sin in the lives of other people? <clears throat> because God's projects, this temple and this wall that God wants to get built in the world, God's projects are actually designed to renovate God's people. God has all the resources in the world. He could, he could and it happens. Like, he did that with uh, the earth. Here. Animals. Plants. There. He can do it. Like, the, the construction, the projects, are designed to renovate God's people. So Nehemiah prays. Let's read together in chapter 2. It's actually four months since he started praying. He's been praying for four months. And he's continued to do his job as cupbearer. He's before the king every day, and, and he's doing his job. He's doing a good job. Because, hey, I'm just telling you, if you're the cupbearer, if you're the guy who's responsible to make sure that the king doesn't get poisoned, like you don't get to have a bad day. You walk into the king's presence and you're the dude who's like testing for the king. If you walk in with a frown on your face, like you're, you're gone. Like you better come. Oh, king, we're, I'm, I'm so excited to help you out. Like let me taste all of your stuff and make sure that it's safe for you. Like I'm ready. I'm ready to do my job. Like you show up ready to work. Cause if you walk in like, I'm kind of bummed today. Like, I don't know. I'm not really into it today, king. Like I'm not going to trust you to make sure that I don't die. Anyway. So he prays for four months, continues to do his work, and then he goes to the king, and he actually does let his face drop. He actually does show, like, I'm in agony over something here. And the king says, hey, what's wrong? <laughs> Before we go to dinner, like, just, what's wrong with you? <clears throat> so they start to have a conversation. And in chapter 2 and verse 6, read with me. <clears throat> He explains all of the things that have, that have happened, all of the things that have gone on, um, the, the, the rebuilding of the temple and how the walls are still in ruin. In verse 6, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So he's, he's heard news of what's going on. He prays and fasts for four months. And then he goes to the king and he says, King, like there's something going on. The work isn't finished yet. Like the, the, worship, the true worship of Yahweh hasn't permeated the rest of society. Like I think I need to go back. I think I need to help them get this across the finish line. 
and he shares his heart. He shares his burden. But here's what, here's what I know about when you go to ask your boss for something. <clears throat> your boss is doing whatever it is that your boss does. Like, that's what he's concerned about. So you come in and say, I've got this passion. I've got this burden in my heart for this other thing that's not what you're doing. And the king said to me, how long will you be gone and when will you return? The king's like, all right, if you're going to go do this, like how, how long I got to find a fill-in for? And what I love about Nehemiah is that he has a plan. He says, this is how long I'm going to be gone. This is what I'm going to need you to send with me. These are, this is, these are the letters that I'm going to need. These are the people I need you to address. This is, this is all of the, the donkeys that I'm going to need to, camel, to carry us over here. This is how long I'll be gone. This is how long I'll be back. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So if you're like me and you see spreadsheets and like organization and things like that, you look at that and go, the spirit of God is, is, is absent in this place. You say, there's no way that, that God can work through an Excel spreadsheet. Like that's so, that's so structured and formal and the numbers and they just make me, they make my eyes bleed. Like I hate thinking about that kind of thing. And yet that's the exact kind of thing that God is moving in and, and acting through here. Cause, cause Nehemiah, Nehemiah does what I do. Oh, King, I have this great burden upon my heart and I just feel moved by God to go do this thing. And, and if it was me in front of the King, he'd be like, all right, well, how long are you going to be gone? I don't don't know. It's probably going to take some time. Um, maybe I'll need, I'll probably need to take some food with me to get there and, you know, some protection, maybe. No, let's not, no. Um, you, you see what I'm saying? The Spirit of God moves in a detailed plan. The Spirit of God can move as much in a moment and in spontaneity as we worship Him, and we can worship Him by laying out a plan and submitting it wholly to Him and saying, God, this is what I think is the best way forward. Would you, would you show me where I've erred, and would you please bless this if this is the way that you want for us to go? God can do both of those things, which bloggles my mind. Because me, the emotional person, needs the person who can make the spreadsheet. Because otherwise, we're just in there, like, twiddling our thumbs. I don't know how long it's going to take. Like, it could be a while. I just feel it so deeply. i got to do something. You know what I mean? Here's the thing. Here's the question that comes to my heart. Do we have a plan to complete the work that God entrusts to us? When God gives us a burden and God gives us a passion for something, when he has entrusted some of his good work to us, humble us, like not worthy us, do we look at that and go, oh, God, that's too great for me? Or do we say, God, how would this even happen? Would you help me make a plan? Like this is beyond me, but with all things you're possible, and like I need you to help me fill in some gaps. Can we get this on paper? Not that the paper, not that the paper becomes God itself, not that we now serve the paper, but that the paper serves God by giving us a plan. Do we have a plan to complete the work God entrusts to us? Nehemiah did. There's a whole bunch of things that we can learn from Nehemiah, the way that he progresses through this. This is an interesting book to talk about uh, leadership and things like that, how people get to do what they're going to do. But I told you we're going to cover 10 chapters, and that's not what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to give you a brief summary if you can hang on with me. Then you strap into the roller coaster. Here we go over the hill. Um, 
In, verse, in chapters 3 and 4, there's a whole bunch of names and a whole bunch of people doing a whole bunch of work. They're building the wall. And they end up all kind of building the wall in front of their house in chapters 3 and 4. And as they're building a wall, hey, guess what? There's opposition. People that are around, they're like, I don't want that city to be fortified. Like, I like being able to, to, to punk them whenever I want to. So there's opposition to God's work. Hey, surprise, happens every time. And guess what? God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work. Right? We learned that last week, so that's why I'm not talking about it this week. So there's building an opposition in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 5, there's this internal oppression where, where the people inside the city, the people who are working together, they begin to have this idea that the rich people can, can, can um, steal money. Uh, they use nicer words for it, but essentially what it is is they're stealing money from the poor people. And they're, they're giving out loans and then ex- ex- expecting so much interest. And, and the people that are on the same team have made this hierarchy and now are abusing each other. And so Nehemiah has to deal with this internal oppression that, hey, everybody who's on God's team like is on God's team. It's not your team. It's not what you want to do. It's really, really interesting. But that's chapter five. In chapter six, there's actually a physical attack where they try to assassinate Nehemiah which is really, really, if you like that kind of thing, is like a, a novel. And the thing I love about this book, too, did you notice it's written in the first person? Like, this is kind of Nehemiah's diary. As he goes through, he kind of explains, like, this is what happened to me, and this is what happened to me, and this is what happened to me. Sometimes you read the Bible, and it's thee, thou, though, thy, la, 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 and it feels like it's a mile away. And this is a book that's like, oh, this happened to a dude. He wrote it down, which I think is great. That's chapter 6. And then at the end of chapter 6, they finish the wall. Touchdown. So we finally get there. That's the whole view. But God patiently overcomes obstacles to his good work is a a big idea that carries throughout all those chapters. And God's projects are designed to renovate God's people. It's not just getting the work done on the backs of the poor people. It's we're all on the same team and we're working together. God's projects are designed to renovate God's people. So would you turn with me to chapter 8 of Nehemiah? And the Blue Bibles is on page 503. They finished the walls. The temple's done. In Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, which is just a gate in this city. Now they have gates. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for that purpose. And beside him stood Metathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. I'm going to pause and just say, like, if you're reading your Bible and you're like, I don't know what those names are, like, it happens to me too. So that's what we're doing here. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood. (laughs) 
And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, uh, Hodiah, Maasiah, Keleta, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, the Levites, helps the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So, pause. Before we continue on here, I need to make a correction. I told you last week that they had lost the book of the law, and in the construction of the temple, they found it. That's a different story from earlier in the time, uh, King Josiah. So that's actually, that did happen, but not happen in this time that we talked about. I said it was in this time, it wasn't this time. I'm sorry. <clears throat> but here's what happens. They finish the walls, and then they, they stand up, and imagine this for a worship gathering. They get everybody together, and they just read it. They read the text. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, and they stood there from morning, they stood there from morning until midday. Like, I don't remember who I was talking to about it this week, like, you can't do church without AC in Florida. You can't do church without cushions on the chairs. Like, how many of you have had conversations with people about, man, I like, I like that preacher, but these pews are just so uncomfortable. Like, the, the old wooden pews in the church buildings before the AC. Like, I'm just saying, I know that those things have happened. These people stood outside in the sun from morning until evening just listening to the book being read. And it moved them. The Spirit of God has a really interesting way of working through the reading of God's Word. We're purposeful in making sure that, that as we go through and design our worship gatherings that we're using the Scripture and that all that we're doing is interacting with the Scripture. We do readings on purpose. I read the text on purpose because it's God's Word, not mine. And that's what they do here. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. If... If you can say at the end of the day that that's what I do, like, I've hit my goal. That's what I'm trying to do on a Sunday morning. But they have this reading, right? And remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, which we read this morning, as they're coming into the land, God says, hey, you're going to go into this land, I'm going to kick a bunch of people out, and they, do, they worship God, they worship their own gods, and it's messed up. You're going to want to ask, like, how is it that you worship God? Maybe I can use some of your worship practices. I'm telling you, the worship of Yahweh is distinctive from the nations. There's nothing that you can learn from those corrupt people. Don't listen to them. Don't mix with them. Don't listen to them. Don't do their kind of sacrifices. Like, it's all messed up. Don't do it. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you how to do it. I give you the whole book of Leviticus. Like, you're going to have plenty of instructions here. Listen. Right? So the worship of Yahweh is distinct, and they realize in this, in this reading, in this public reading of God's word, they realize that they have messed up. They realize that they didn't listen. <laughs> Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. 
and with the earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chekaniah, Chekanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heavens worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. I'm going to pause there and just let you know what's getting ready to happen. They start to sing a worship song to God, and they recount their whole history, starting from creation. Like, I tried to give you a brief snapshot of the history of Israel as we were beginning this. They sing it. It's really, really interesting, and it goes on for the rest of chapter 9. What has happened is they read the word of God and they realized, oh, we, we have not done this. We have not kept ourselves separate from those nations that we were trying to kick out. And, and if you look, that they, they read the book of the law and then they made a confession for the quarter of the day. And look at verse 2 real quick, chapter 9, verse 2. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Like, as, as we're reading that, like, that sounds churchy, right? They confessed their iniquities. Like, cool. Like, like, that's awesome. They've repented. They've confessed their iniquities. The book of Ezra that we were in actually gives the detail of what's happening there. They're realizing we weren't supposed to intermarry with those people, and now we have intermarried with those people. So... Worshiping of God actually looked like separating themselves from people. God ends up breaking apart families, and it's jacked up. Like, as they're reading and wrestling with the Word of God, it, it is destroying their lives. The things that they thought were, were, were stable are not. And it's, it's really difficult, and it's hard to wrestle with, but it's here in the Scripture. They're seeking how to worship God, and God's like, you guys need to separate and this is the only time I see it in Scripture this way. It's fascinating. But does our Sunday morning conviction change our Monday morning life? There's times where we come to God and we interact with His Word and we're like, oh yeah, like God, yeah, oh, you're right. God, you're right. I'm wrong, you're right. And then Monday we're like, yeah, but I'm kind of right too, now that I think about it. <laughs> Like, maybe you weren't so right. Like, I felt like you were right yesterday, but today, like, maybe not so much. The question becomes, does our Sunday morning conviction change our Monday morning life? Are we cool with rebuilding the temple and leaving it in the midst of a desolate city and saying, I worship God and leaving the rest of our life to ruin? 
Are we okay with coming on a Sunday morning and playing the game and putting on the tie and making everybody look like we're okay when we're really, really, really messed up and we're not dealing with our sin and, and we're not taking it to Jesus and confessing it and accepting his forgiveness? I'm not saying like, like it's going to be easy because it wasn't. It was messy. It was dirty. And Nehemiah describes it very briefly. Ezra draws it out. It takes chapters to talk about what happens here. Does our Sunday morning conviction change our Monday morning life? Because God's projects are designed to renovate God's people. The people recite a history of everything that God's done with them. And in chapter 9 and verse 38, they say, because of all this, because everything that you did for us, everything that we did to rebel and mutiny against you, all the ways and all the times that you've taken us back, in, in chapter 9, verse 38, it says, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then if you look at the next chapter there in verse 10, that's a list, another list of names. They come to this place in worship where they say, God, I've been wrong and I need to change and it's going to change how the rest of my life looks. And they say, I'm, I'm so serious about this. I'm literally willing to sign a contract. I'm willing to put my name in ink that I was wrong and now I am changing. I'm, I'm making a written statement for all of history to read. Like, we can read. We don't know who these people were, but their names are here. It's preserved. God's kept a record. It's a legal document. So would we be willing to sign our names to follow God and what he's asked for us. And when you put it in perspective of the God who's willing to forgive all your sin, the God who not only is willing to forgive you, he's willing to forgive your sin at great cost to himself. Remember, he gave his son to shed his blood the remission of the forgiveness of your sin. And God, if you're willing to take that extreme and be that committed to renovating your people? Will I be willing to put my name in ink? Like, yes, I want to follow you. Because God's projects are designed to renovate God's people. Let's pray together.